That nine-week series on wisdom from the book of Proverbs was a thing of beauty, wasn't it? So helpful. And we need all the beauty we can get our eyes on these days, especially in this ugly political season. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Every other commercial is a smear campaign to tell us how ugly the other candidate is. Every other news story uh, highlights the ugliness of politicians gone wild, saying and doing ugly things, even saying she's ugly. I feel like I need a shower after watching TV. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I do. Division is ugly. Our country is divided between rich and poor, black and white, Democrats and Republicans. Violence is ugly. Our world is inundated with terrorism, school shootings, and the stealing and selling of humans for sex. Addiction is ugly. People are helplessly, hopelessly addicted to all kinds of things and will do almost anything for a fix. I went looking for a news story on one of uh, uh, the news websites, and on the home page was almost entirely uh, ugly headlines. If you're a Cubs fan, it said the Cubs won last night, so that's, I guess, not so ugly. But if you're an Indians fan, that was ugly. But, but most, of the, most of the headlines were just ugly. Fugitive shot dead. Police officer killed by drunk driver. 12-year-old boy shot dead on porch. Boy found dead in closet, had been locked away for three years. All of the ugliness can be thrown into two categories, I think. Uh, discord and disloyalty. This two-headed monster is as old as Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve betrayed God, disloyalty. Adam and Eve then blamed each other, discord. So ugliness has always been around since Genesis 3, but it seems uglier than ever. And one of the ways that the church responded to the ugliness of the world way back when was by offsetting the ugliness with beauty, the beauty of art. We call this the Renaissance period between the 14th and 17th centuries. That was when artists like Da Vinci and uh, Michelangelo and Caravaggio uh, started to do their thing. Uh, call me an art racist, but I think Italian painters are the best. I don't know why. Uh, but I'm married to a Dutch girl, so I have to throw in Rembrandt and Vermeer. So these are the artists of the Renaissance, trying to offset the ugliness of culture with the beauty of art. And let me just emphasize that almost all of the art of the Renaissance was produced or commissioned by the church. But now, even, even art is ugly. There is this trend in modern art to expose the societal ugliness around us by mirroring it with what is equally grotesque. One philosopher puts it this way. There is in the most recent art a posture of transgression matching the ugliness of the thing it betrays with an ugliness of its own. So now, in music, movies, literature, painting, artists are trying to expose ugliness 
by producing art that is grotesque and perverse and ugly. But you don't fight ugly with ugly. It only makes the world uglier. Well, all this has left us feeling somewhat ugly, dirty, disappointed, depressed, desperate for something better. And I don't think the primary problem in the world is that we humans are at root ugly. No, that is not the root of who we are. The root of who we are is not the depravity and ugliness of Genesis chapter 3. We actually have to go further back to Genesis 1, creation. The root of who we are is made in the image of God. That is who we are. Now, the primary problem is not that we are ugly. The primary problem is that we are beauty starved. And when we are starved, I mean ravenous, a Ritz cracker will seem to us like a 16-ounce T-bone steak. What I mean is that when we're starved for beauty and immersed in ugliness, we'll settle for immediate, shallow, sensory forms of beauty, which only leaves our beauty-starved belly empty still. There are two kinds of beauty. There's sensory beauty and there's soul beauty. Sensory beauty begins and ends with the senses. It's the sexy, the sleek, the shiny. And then there's soul beauty. Soul beauty may start with the senses, but it takes us deeper to the soul. Even Plato, a pagan philosopher, said that there is a uh, base form of desire which targets the body and a higher form which targets the soul. Even Plato was disgusted by physical lust because he felt like it fostered an eclipse of the soul by the body. But when you're starved for beauty and the sexy and sleek and shiny is right in front of you, that's what you settle for, the Ritz cracker. And it only makes you ugly. When you're immersed in ugly, taking ugly in to your beauty-starved belly, it can make your soul ugly. And I won't put that on you or assume that about you, but I'll just confess in a testimonial way that over the last year or two, especially in this political climate, I feel ugly. I've been ugly. I'll watch the news. I feel ugly. I'll scroll through Facebook. I feel ugly. I'll try to escape the political arena and go rent a movie, and it's usually a perverse form of art or a violent form of art to expose the ugliness of the world, and that makes me feel dirtier and uglier too. I am not given the melancholy and anger, but I have felt like I've wrestled with those two demons a lot lately. You may say, dude, you're just experiencing a midlife crisis, and I would say, shut up. But I think the root is that I am just beauty-starved. And ugly in, ugly out. Ugly in, ugly out. That's what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that what we take in through the eyes impacts the body, the brain, the soul. He put it this way, uh, chapter 6 of Matthew, verses 22 and 23. He said, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, 
your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, that's a peculiar passage, one that's hard to interpret. So we have to look at the passage before it and after it to interpret it. And just before the eye is the lamp of the body passage, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, focused on sensory beauty. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And then in the passage after the eye is the lamp of the body, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All of that, I think, sheds interpretive light on the eye as the lamp of the body. I think what Jesus is saying very clearly is that what we take in through the eyes into the body reveals and impacts the state of the soul. You are not what you eat. You are what you see, Jesus is saying. And good eyes learn to look for subtle soul beauty where bad eyes don't think to. So where can beauty-starved people like us find a buffet of beauty to satisfy the soul? God. God is beautiful. But the most beautiful beauty of God is not the sensory beauty, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, that's beautiful. But the most beautiful beauty of God is more subtle. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about. Isaiah is talking hundreds of years before the Christ comes on the scene about the Christ. And he says that the, the Christ has a beauty that is not very beautiful. It's, it's subtle, almost hard to detect. And he says uh, in verses 2 and 3, that the Christ, when he came on the scene, had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance, sensory beauty, that would, we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by humankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. That's how ugly he was. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. He had no beauty or majesty. Economically, the Christ had no beauty. I mean, he was born to poor peasant Jews eating welfare cheese and using food stamps at the kosher deli. Ethic ethnically, he had no beauty. He was born as a first century Jew, really the lowest of the low, the unsophisticated of society. The, the, the Greco-Roman culture looked down upon the Jews as the lowest. He was despised, the beautiful Christ who had no beauty. The Hebrew word for despise is beza. It means to accord little value or worth to someone or something. So what in the world made the beautiful Christ who had no beauty so beautiful? Isaiah tells us. First, peacefulness. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, shalom, was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Peacefulness. 
in a world torn apart between Jew and Greek, male, female, black, white, Dems, Republicans. The blood of Jesus Christ drips down from the cross to fertilize the soil of our soul and create a garden of Eden, a garden of peace again, to go back past Genesis 3 to Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus can't stand it when groups are divided and when people are separated from him. And in a world framed by the ugliness of discord, peacefulness is a beautiful canvas. But there's a second quality that makes the not-so-beautiful Christ beautiful, and that's faithfulness. Look at verses 11 and 12 in Isaiah 53. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils, the rewards, the trophy that he earned with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for them. Jesus the Christ takes on all the cost, all the sacrifice, and then he shares the victory with the team. A little football theology. Imagine, imagine Jesus is the quarterback of a football team, and he gets sacked 15 times in a game because his offensive line won't or can't block for him. He puts every single pass right in the belly of the receivers, and they only catch one out of 10. The running back fumbles eight times in that game, and Jesus, the quarterback, jumps on every loose ball and gets crushed in the process. He manages to squeak a few into the end zone to win the game, single-handedly. At the end of the game, he walks off the field bloody and beaten. A reporter comes to him, interviews him, and he just brags about the team. <laughs> they give him a trophy, he hands it to the offensive line. <laughs> Even if we are faithless to him, he remains faithful. We despised him, rejected him, mocked him, spit on him, pulled out his beard, put a crown of thorns on his head, cheated on him, and he has never stopped loving us as much as he possibly can. That's loyalty. That's faithfulness. And in a world framed by the ugliness of disloyalty, faithfulness like that is a beautiful canvas. I love how Christ turns ugliness on its beautiful head. Painting over discord with peacefulness and disloyalty with faithfulness. Christ is the beginning of God's art restoration project, undoing the ugliness of the first Adam with the beauty of the second Adam. God's art restoration project starts with Christ, but it doesn't end there. It actually continues in the temple. The beauty of Christ is in the temple. Psalm 27.4 says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may gaze at the beauty of God and seek him in his temple. There are large chunks of Scripture where God is portrayed as the cosmic artist 
who is serious about the decoration and the design of the temple. But the most beautiful temple is not the one that God initiates through human hands. No, the most beautiful temple is the one that God's brushstroke alone creates. That's us. Paul said to the Corinthians, you are the temple. The Holy Spirit is in you. You're holy. You're the temple. So while I'm beauty starved and immersed in ugliness, I come to the temple looking for beauty to satisfy my hunger. I don't mean that I sit around looking for attractive women and handsome men that would be creepy or stained glass window, which is beautiful. I'm saying I come to the temple looking for the beautiful brushstroke of God in the lives of peaceful, faithful people. At College Wesleyan Church, just about every week, we get to gaze at the beauty of God coming through a tall, light, and handsome preacher who pours blood, sweat, and tears into every word he delivers. As if a woman laboring to push life out of her womb, he labors to push words of life out of his mouth as if our lives and his depend on it. And that's a thing of beauty. I went to uh, bring communion to one of our shut-ins just two weeks ago. And while I was there, I asked her to tell me about her family. And she had five kids. She told me about uh, two of her daughters who have died. One daughter died at the age of 14 more than 50 years ago, suddenly, tragically. One of her daughters died in her 50s in a battle with cancer about four years ago. She told me about her 20-something-year-old grandson who died, tragically, about two years ago, and her husband of more than 60 years died at around the same time. This woman has her life framed by the ugliness of death. I mean, she has experienced more than her fair share of grief. And while she's telling me that, I'm thinking to myself, if I had that much grief, I might be tempted to abandon the God I felt like abandoned me. And while I'm thinking that thought, in the presence of my 11-year-old daughter who was with us, she looked in my eyes with joy, genuine joy, peace, and faith in her face, and she said, I don't know how anybody gets through that kind of stuff without the Lord. With every grief she faced, she upped the ante of her faith. I'll see your tragedy, and I'll raise you faith. She has put her faith in a God who has not sheltered her from pain but sits with her in it. And that's a thing of beauty. One, one more snapshot of beauty. I have this portrait hanging on the wall of my heart. It's been there for about two decades, so it's an older one. I was a, a hospice chaplain way back, and I show up for my shift on the fourth floor of a hospital. The nurses tell me the woman in room 404 is not going to make it. Uh, she has hours, maybe days, probably hours to live. You better get in there. And I walk into the room, woman in her 50s, 
And the first thing I see when I walk in the room is uh, the doctor bent over the woman's bed analyzing a cancerous tumor the size of a football protruding from her abdomen. I had never seen cancer that large or that up close and personal. It was ugly. And then my eyes quickly made their way up to her face. And Joy's face was, well, full of joy. (laughs) Peace and faith in it. And I moved closer to her to discuss her situation. She had her kids and grandkids all around her bed saying their goodbyes. And Joy looked at me and said these words. She said, God is now present with me. But I look forward to being present with him soon in heaven. Her life in that moment was a beautiful brushstroke proclaiming Cancer does not have the final word. Christ does. And that's a thing of beauty. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has made all things beautiful in his time. We need to develop an aesthetic theodicy, a defense of the goodness of God based on beauty in a world that is often ugly. If there's anything I've learned about art, it's this. Even the most ugly frame seems peripheral when the canvas is absolutely beautiful. Beauty is a 10-year-old boy confined to a wheelchair for life who is laughing hysterically at his older sister's ice cream falling off her cone. Beauty is a homeless man putting all he has, the little he has, into an offering plate because he wants to contribute to the big mission of God. Beauty is a husband patiently, faithfully loving his wife who is battling depression and more than a little bit difficult to live with. Beauty is a daughter inviting her mom who has tortured her with alcoholism for decades to join her, her husband, and two kids in Disney. That's goofy beautiful. Beauty is making peace when you want to throw a punch. Beauty is giving someone the benefit of the doubt when you have every reason not to. Beauty is deciding to put your faith in God even when your world is framed by ugliness. Beauty, simply put, is a life that is aligned with the peacefulness and faithfulness of the beautiful Christ who had no beauty. But beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In other words, to see the subtle beauty of God, you got to have certain kinds of eyes. Even Hume said that uh, the art critic's good taste comes from the art critic's good character. The only way to see subtle soul beauty is to be a beautiful soul, to have sanctified eyes. And the most mature Christians among us are those who have this aesthetic aesthetic theology. They're, They're able to find collateral beauty in the collateral damage of life. So how do we get our eyes sanctified? That's the question. How do we get good eyes so we can see soul beauty, identify it, and then imitate it? 
Well, we need an art professor's help. We need the Holy Spirit, the cosmic art professor, who alone can help us identify beauty and imitate beauty. Beauty in, beauty out. When I visit a big city, I love to go to art museums. Uh, not because I'm good at producing art or even good at appreciating art. I just, I'm beauty starved, and so I just go. And I know that I miss so much subtle beauty in the museum because I, I'm not trained to see it. So I'll oftentimes get through the art museum in like two hours, one hour if my kids are with me. And I'll notice as I pass by at one point this certain section, I'll see somebody standing there gazing at a work of art, and then I'll come back in an hour, and that person, same person, is still gazing at the same work of art. And I wish I could just invite some of our art professors to take me four or five times to the same art museum and show me what to look for. I'll take Rod Crossman, Ron Mazellan, R&R, and we'll just go look for some art. And they'll show me the subtle brushstrokes of the artist. They'll train me to see it. Don't you wish you can just walk through life with Jesus and have him point out to you the subtle soul beauty all around us that we so often miss? What I'm saying is you can have that through the Holy Spirit. So I want to invite you on a journey for the next seven days. Maybe it'll become a habit, but I'm going to ask you to commit for seven days, okay? It's a week, one-week intensive course, okay? First, I want us to uh, identify beauty. That's number one. Identify beauty. Beauty in. Become a beauty detective, a beauty sleuth. In the evening or in the afternoon, whatever works best for you, I would suggest the evening. I want you just to record in a journal, on your phone, wherever, a couple sentences, noting where the Holy Spirit showed you beauty that day, at home, at work, in the classroom, on the court, at Walmart, wherever you have seen beauty, the beauty of peaceful, faithful, peaceful, faithful people, just record it, okay? Beauty in. And then secondly, after you identify beauty, number two is imitate beauty. Beauty out. Beauty in, beauty out. So at some point in your day, maybe in the morning, uh, sit with your journal, cup of coffee, and ask the Holy Spirit to bring to the surface of your soul a situation you're in, a temptation, an opportunity, a threat, a relational issue. And then ask the Spirit, the cosmic art professor, what would imitating beauty look like for me right now in that situation? Ask, and then listen. The Spirit will tell you. He'll give you impressions, and then obey. Ask, listen, obey. Imitate beauty.